worship is over. And let's just make sure we're all on the same page. I think we are, but let's just verify this. We love the sound of children. So we, we don't have issues with children being in our worship services. Um, children, as you will see momentarily, are a sign of life. And without children, we die. Doesn't that make you feel good? <laughs> I like to start a message off of that. But it's the truth. So children are truly a blessing. And we will get there soon uh, in just a few moments. If you want to turn your Bibles to Matthew 23, we're going to park on a few verses there in the book of Matthew. And I promise we'll connect them to Revelation. But, you know, I'm getting kind of, uh, I think we're going to have to change some things around here. Don't y'all like change? Yes. Yes. Ben, I think we're going to have to start, I'm going to have to preach first. Because by the time we get here, I feel like you've said everything I want to say. In the songs. Do Do you really want the Holy Spirit to fill your life? To the point where you are overflowing. I mean, that's what y'all just sang. Now, some of you were, some of you were just saying the words. I'll you look around and it can become routine. It's, I mean, but do we really, really want the Spirit of God to be here in our midst to completely flood this place? You have to be careful what you ask for. Because when Jesus grabs a hold of you, crazy things happen. Right? Amazing grace. Amazing grace. One of the questions I'm going to ask you this morning is, are your chains gone? Have you been set free? And as we look at the Word of God this morning, my prayer is that that has happened. But some of us think our chains are gone, but they're really not. Some of you this morning claim to be a follower of Jesus. But instead of providing freedom and hope to the world around you, you are instead placing chains of bondage on people that you live with. Some of you claim to be a Christian this morning, but instead of spreading the love of God with the world, you are spreading oppression and doubt and discord. My prayer is you are not one of those people this morning, but we're going to go to the Word of God and see what God has to say about that and ask that true question, am I living the life Christ has called me to live? Am I really overflowing with the Holy Spirit? Are my chains truly gone? Let's pray, and then we will jump into the Word of God this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your Word. And God, you know me, you know my heart, you know how messed up and how I struggle so much living for you. And I pray that we would always go to your word for realignment and that we would obey what is said and that we would be a light to the world around us. Father, I pray right now that you would not, you would not waste this hour, but you would speak to us through your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, trust me, I I said hour, but don't worry. We'll get out maybe in less than an hour. 
Now, in your Bible study this morning, we studied the book of Sardis. And that church, that letter to the church at Sardis, you discovered that, that, that other people, other churches, other places spoke well of that church. In Revelation 1 through 3, we see in those letters that the surrounding community was amazed at the energy of the activities found within that church. But when you look closely, the Lord's careful analysis provides something interesting. Precise observation revealed that it was all show and no substance. This letter has no good word for the church at Sardis. While other letters provide commendation and condemnation, there's no commendation in the church at Sardis. The church had mistaken activity for spirituality. It had forgotten the assignment the Lord had given it to reach the world with the gospel. There was a lot of smoke, but no fire. So this morning, I want to ask the same question of you and me. Have we gone astray and forgotten the assignment the Lord has for us? Is that passionate fire of the Great Commission burning brightly in our midst? You know, as I've chewed these questions this week, it led me to a passage, this passage in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, where Jesus is pronouncing woes on the religious leaders of the day. This passage has left an imprint on my heart this week, and I want to share it with you. So let's look at Matthew 23, Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 and 28. Woe to you, Jesus is speaking, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but, with, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. We read this passage and we like to shake our finger and go shame, shame on these religious leaders. We like to throw words like whitewashed tombs and hypocrites out there. But unfortunately, do we truly understand what Jesus is talking about? Maybe we need to look at the context, the cultural understanding of what this means for us to connect it to our hearts. So let's do that this morning. Before we can truly understand what Jesus is talking about, we need to understand the context. What does he mean by tombs? What does he mean by tombs? We need to understand this cultural, historical perspective on burial sites in order to truly understand what Jesus is calling them, what kind of name he's giving to these religious leaders. As we look at the culture of the day, we see that they used different kinds of burial sites. Uh, the ancient Hebrews, depending on the occasion of the death, the time allotted for burial, and really the geological characteristics of the area that they were living in. The most common type of burial arrangement that was used was a sh simple shaft or a trench grave. It was often lined with mats, wood, or stone. These simple graves were sometimes marked by a tree. We see that in Genesis 35. Or in the case of infamous individuals, a burial plot was identified by a pile of stones placed over it. We see that in Joshua and 2 Samuel. They also used caves to bury individuals, either for convenience or because the time and the money didn't permit them to cut tomb from the rock. We see that with Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 23. Other members of Abraham's family in the latter portions of Genesis were buried in the cave at Machpelah at Hebron. 
They also use rock cut tombs as the best, that's the, one of the best documented burial sites known today. And they display a wide variety of forms. Some were designed for single internment, one body. But most were designed for multiple burials. Usually a whole family was buried in the same tomb. These tombs, the tombs of the wealthy, were frequently located in gardens. We see that in 2 Kings and Matthew and John. Some tombs were marked by monuments or pillars. And they were whitewashed on the outside. Now, what does that mean? The whitewashing was an identification marker to prevent Jews from accidentally touching them and being rendered ceremonially defiled. They also used rock-cut tombs, and we see that where they were sealed with a square stone or a round slab used in the Roman period. We call those rolling stones, and we see that uh, truly with the account of Jesus. Uh, excavations have revealed 60 such tombs west of the Jordan that have already been discovered. But you think about these whitewashing and the point or the purpose of whitewashing a tomb or a burial site is identification marker. And that's important for the Jewish culture. Why? Because you didn't want to be rendered unclean. Because there's a process you have to go through at that point, right? It's not like I'm unclean, go wash my hands. This is a period of time where you are rendered unclean and you cannot participate in social life. So this is a big deal. So we mark the tombs so we don't become unclean by coming in contact with them, by getting near them. So these tombs are washed to identify them. Contact with a dead body was one of the most abhorrent of experiences for the religious Jew. We see that in Numbers 19. It has rendered the individual ceremony unclean for a period of time. Now Jesus contrasted these tombs, these whitewashed tombs, with the religious leaders. These religious leaders looked righteous on the surface, but inwardly they were truly unrighteous. They were truly unclean. Now how do they, how do they relate Well, you see, Jesus was telling them that as a religious leader, not only were they unclean on the inside while they were trying to cover up the outside and look clean. Don't, do we do that? We don't ever do that, do we? We can skip that part of the message. We don't have to talk about how we're really messed up on the inside where we try to dress nice and act pretty. You don't do that? It got quiet. Not only was he telling them that you have issues on the inside, but he was telling them that when other people come in contact with you, you make them unclean too. How does that make you feel? How would you feel if you were there and Jesus came up to you and identified you as a whitewashed tomb? You'd say, okay, Jesus, I get it because I'm sinful and I make mistakes and I need healing. We say yes, but then we understand truly what he's saying is, yeah, but the sin that you have in your life is rubbing off on other people. And you're causing other people to turn away from me. You are rendering others unclean by them just being in your presence. Wow. Here the connection to the church at Sardis is obvious. The church appeared alive, they appeared active, they appeared engaged, when in reality they were dead and in danger of causing others to stumble. 
This leads me to ask a question. Who is righteous? Who is clean? A survey of Scripture reveals the answer. Romans chapter 3 tells us, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. There's a lot of no's and none's in there, right? Who's righteous? Nobody. In reality, there is no one on the planet who is truly righteous, who is truly clean. So if we understand that, we're all unclean, we're all unrighteous. As we study Scripture, we read how interesting that this comes up today. We read this issue with a word that's repeated over and over when it comes to unclean or unrighteous. And this word is the word heart. The word heart is all over Scripture. It is significant in the Hebrew Scriptures, referring almost exclusively to the human heart over 800 times. The heart is the center of emotions, feelings, moods, and passions. Functionally, the heart is the source of thought and reflection intellectually. The heart also represents the idea of volition and conscience. It represents the total human person as the center for decisions, Obedience, devotion, and intentionality. The heart's important. The heart is, in, is vital to life. The heart is key for the way that you're going to go. You lead with your heart. You make decisions with your heart. You act with your heart. So what does Scripture say about the heart? Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know, I was having a conversation with somebody this week and struggling with illness because we all go through those periods of time when we're sick or we're dealing with the crud or we're in the hospital and we're not sure what our issues are. You ever go through periods of time where you got a problem and you're like, I don't know what's wrong. Can't figure it out. And then you finally get to the point where you go to the doctor and he diagnoses you with a problem, Right? Your problem is this. And you have, you're either relieved or you're not at that point, right? Because you're like, oh my gosh, this is what I have to deal with. Or, hey, I know what it is now, I can handle it. In reality, guys, we're all dying, right? I mean, what does it say here? The heart is deceitfully, deceitful above all things and desperately sick. We're all dying. We need to know the situation and what we're dealing with. Then we can respond. Matthew 15 tells us, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. You mean read that list again? These are what defile a person. But it originates where? In the heart. The heart, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts. The heart. Through Scripture, we see the true nature of the heart. Then we see that even though we are unrighteous and our hearts are desperately sick, it is God who provides the exam and the opportunity for healing. Proverbs 21 tells us, Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Who is the judge of the heart? Who is the weigher of the heart? It is not your cardiologist. It is the true and living God. 
Acts, two, Acts chapter 8 tells us, Repent therefore of your wicked ways and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven. And then Romans 10 tells us, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that one believes and is justified and is with the mouth that one, is con one confesses and is saved. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. Proverbs 3, 5 tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. My friends, we are called out of our unrighteousness, our uncleanness into a marvelous light of God's glory. We are forgiven and freed, being washed clean by the atoning blood of Jesus. Our hearts can be made new to trust in the Lord and to serve Him wholeheartedly. As converts to faith in Jesus as Savior, we are left to discern how to live a new life of faith to join a body of believers and to worship together. But is there more to the Christian life than that? I've been in the discussion this week with a group of colleagues about the word convert. We were in a discussion about discipleship and Christian growth, and I threw a phrase out that, that drew a bit of controversy in the group. And it was the fact that um, I told them I do not believe in converts. And there was quite a bit of kickback. I think that's one of our biggest problems in churches. Is we preach conversion. And then we leave people at the door. Let's not make any bones about it. This church is not about creating converts. It's creating mature disciples of Christ. Our goal is not to lead people to Christ. And then leave them on their own to walk with Jesus. But our goal is to draw people into a relationship with Jesus and then walk together with them as they grow and mature as followers of Christ. We are in this together, my friends. We all make mistakes and we all mess up along the way, but that is why we are in this together, to wrap our arms around each other, to love each other, and to spur each other along for good works. We are in this together to develop mature disciples who make mature disciples, not a generation of converts to Jesus so they can go to heaven and not hell. That is not what church is about. After the discussion, everyone came to the point that they um, had misunderstood my words and agreed wholeheartedly with what I was saying. My friends, we are not in the business of creating converts. We are not in the business of filling pews or aisles or member roles with people who will just give money and sit on their sit in their chairs. The mission that God has given every believer is to develop the next generation of disciples who make disciples. That's what it's about, guys. In Matthew, in this Matthew passage, we see the religious leaders who have wandered from the truth and become distracted by religious tradition and practice. We don't do that, do we? No. Let's answer that quickly. No. They were con more concerned with their own reputation. We don't do that, do we? No. All right. Then with others 
instead of pleasing the God whom they claim to serve. We play this game, don't we? What's going to make us look good? And let's forget about what God's telling us to do. Acts 28 tells us, For this people's hearts have grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. It says something about that in Revelation, doesn't it? He who has an ear, let him hear. Yeah. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in turn, and I would hear them. My friend, has your heart grown dull this morning? Is the Christian life mundane and ordinary to you? If you watched the State of the Union address this past week, you probably noticed a sea of white. Did y'all see the sea of white? Anyone? I'm not getting on to you this morning if you're wearing white. This sea of white was made up of a group of congresswomen. And the quote-unquote sea of suffrage white was intended to send a message to the president. Now, I'm not here to talk politics, but there's something I do need to say. As I watched that address, it was very clear that Sea of White did not accomplish the purpose that they had planned to accomplish. Instead, the message rang loud and clear as that very same Sea of White sat motionless as the president urged them to consider the rights of the unborn. Even supporting the idea of murder after birth. We shake our heads. You know, we could satisfy our confusion or rage at our our leaders in our country, and we can assume ignorance. But that scene Tuesday evening reeked of evil and darkness. And I can step out and say a lot of things. But there are times, as a follower of Jesus, we have to stand up. We have to stand up for those that cannot stand up for themselves. And I'm not just talking about children. I'm talking about women. I'm talking about people. I don't care what you look like. I don't care where you're from. We are called to love everyone. I don't care what problem you're struggling with in your life. We are called to love everyone and let Jesus enact the change. Jesus can make the difference. But that picture of that sea of white could not have rang more true as I read Matthew chapter 23 this week and read about those whitewashed tombs. My friends, we have to be very careful because we so easily shake our fists at them. But we need to observe our own intentions. We need to look at ourselves in the mirror. My friends, the Lord is not impressed by our pretenses, our activities, or our promises. We do it within our own building. Listen closely. It is possible, it is truly possible for you and me to believe genuinely that we are doing God's work, that we are obeying God's word, and we are accomplishing God's will, yet be deceived and to experience eternal damnation in our own lives. 
That was the struggle with the church at Sardis. They looked good, but on the inside they were dead. We can say the same for our leaders in our country. They sure can look good, but on the inside their works are dead. It was that same struggle for the religious leaders who Jesus condemned. But before we can pass judgment on others, we must ask ourselves the very same question. Have we missed the point? Is there life inside of me? Is transformation truly taking place in my heart? Is there a fire burning within me? Guys, an incredible healing transformation takes place through a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how change happens. The same hearts that lead us into unrighteousness provide opportunity to play a role on the grand stage of history as the Lord's ambassador to reconcile the world back to Him. But we must all answer the question, what role am I playing? Guys, we're in a day and age when it's time for us to stop shaking our fist at other people. It's time for us to stop saying they need to do this or they need to do that. It's time for us to align our hearts with God's will and get to work. It's time to move. So let's move. But in order to do that, we have to understand something. Are you ready? Is your heart ready? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Has he cleaned you from all unrighteousness? Has that blood washed over you and provided true healing and repentance? And are you ready to go? Are you ready to go not to create converts, but life change in the lives of other people around you? Guys, a revival can begin right here. It's up to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you. I thank you so much for your word and how it rings so true. I don't, I don't, I don't get it because so many people say this book is just worthless or old, old-fashioned, unnecessary. But your word is alive. And it provides direction and instruction for us. If only we would open it. Father, I pray that as we align ourselves with your will, as we seek healing and repentance through your son Jesus, as we are made clean, I pray that we would not be like those hypocrites, but we would bring life to those that we touch. That we wouldn't be a burden to others, but we would provide the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to overwhelm them and overpower them with your presence. Help us to start change right here in Sherwood. Help us to be a voice for those who cannot speak. Father, give us the words to say and the opportunity to say them, to be a light to our community, to be the salt of the earth, to make a difference for those around us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.